Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 65, Pope Pelagius II, because we're already there. Wow, real fast. Yeah, it's another Pelagius. Pelagius. But uh, first things first, it's time to say goodbye. Cue the sad music. What are we saying goodbye to? The diptychs? Pelagius II is the last pope. In the Duchenne edition of the Liber Pontificalis. <gasps> oh, are you going to burn it? <laughs> no, no, I'm very sad about this. This is the source book we've used since our very first episode. So we are bidding adieu to that Liber Pontificalis. Should we uh, pour one out for our homie, the Liber Pontificalis? We should. But before you get too upset, we're not entirely done with it yet because there are other versions of the Liber Pontificalis that have been said to go all the way to Pope Stephen V. So there will be more Liber Pontificalis to come. However, these entries are fewer and much harder to access. So we're not going to be able to frequently reference it from this point forward the way that we have. This is where our guaranteed use of the Liber Pontificalis has come to an end. But if anyone has any excellent sleuthing skills and wants to look and help us out tremendously, I'm actively seeking an online copy of Raymond Davis's edition of the Liber Pontificalis called The Book of Pontiffs that goes to 715. I have access to some of the later editions, but this segment up to 715 is the hardest to find, and it has been evading me, so... That's our call to the librarians and, and the, the people who work at universities who listen because they've been amazing so far. And, and maybe, maybe they can, they can find it because otherwise we're, we're definitely bidding adieu to the Liber Pontificalis for quite a while. So, sad message over. It's time for Pelagius II. Pelagius was born in Rome and his father was Winigildus. What? Vinegildus. Ah, what a good name. Yeah, and it may not surprise you after hearing such a name that he is of Ostrogothic descent. <laughs> That's not, you know, with a name like that, not not a shocker. A and for the same reason that we've had almost zero sources for our last two popes, we know pretty much absolutely nothing about Pelagius's early life. But fortunately, we're going to have a little bit more to go on through this episode, so we're going to just jump right into his papacy so we can get started. So, the clergy elected Pelagius to be the new pope after Benedict died, and like the last two popes, the actual consecration was put on hold for imperial confirmation. And we've already mentioned how the Lombard invasion had severely impeded any communication with the empire. And now, more than that, as we left last week, Rome was literally blockaded in by the Lombards. So, no communications are getting through to the emperor, who is now Tiberius too, by the way. After four months of waiting, they just gave up because they're like, okay, look, there's no way we're getting a message out to the emperor right now. So they, instead of waiting years and years and years, they consecrate Pelagius on November 26th of 579 without imperial approval. And this Lombard blockade of Rome that is currently keeping them from reaching the emperor 
plays a massive role in how Pelagius's papacy is going to play out. First, in order to keep the Lombards out of Rome, Pelagius was forced to give gifts and payments, despite the incredible lack of supplies and money within the city, to, to bribe them to keep them at bay. But keeping them at bay was enough for Pelagius to at least get someone out of the city. One person was able to make it out while everyone else was distracted by the, by the Pope basically trying to bribe the Lombards. This was Pelagius's nuncio, the, quote, ablest of the clergy, a deacon called Gregory. Ooh, it's our boy. It is that boy who is our next episode, the future Pope Gregory I. And again, this is actually why we have more sources for Pelagius's papacy, is because Gregory's in it. Yeah, because they give a sh**. So he, he's acting as papal nuncio right now for Pelagius. And Pelagius sends Gregory to Constantinople in an effort to convince the emperor to send support to Italy against the Lombards, and also to explain why they'd gone ahead with the consecration of the pope without his confirmation, right? Like, Look, things are a little bit dicey right now, so they just made me Pope, but now I've gotten my guy out to you, so we're good, right? In a letter, Pelagius tells the emperor, Here we are in such straits that unless God moves the heart of the emperor to have pity on us and send us a master of the soldiery and a duke, we shall be entirely at the mercy of our enemies, as most of the district round Rome is without protection and the army of these most unspeakable people will take possession of the places still held by the empire. He's like, hey, look, unless you want to come and intervene here, we are so screwed. Unfortunately, the emperor had no assistance to give. The empire was currently embroiled in a costly war with Persia, and they hadn't entirely recovered from warring with the Avars, which is another barbarian tribe. So there's no money. And there certainly weren't any soldiers to spare. And even if they were, Italy was was very, very far from the top of the priority list, as, as we've seen. So the most he could offer was a new exarch for Ravenna, which was a man called Decius. But once Decius arrived in Ravenna, he was faced with the reality that the force he had with him wasn't going to do anything. So Rome and the rest of Italy is as hooped as they were before he got there. So this puts Pope Pelagius in dire straits, and he realized that the only way to stop the Lombards was to maybe distract them with another invading force. Ooh, who's coming? So Pelagius has to turn to the Franks. Oh, no, he's going to throw some hot dogs at these. So we've already alluded a little bit to the Franks and Francia and Frankish kings a little in our previous episodes, but... Because they've been hanging out in background Gaul, we, we've not really had an opportunity to follow up with exactly what's happening there and this emerging new power. So we're going to now, in a very brief and sweeping sort of way. So, <laughs> we did this with the Lombards, now we have the Franks. So the Franks, like many of the groups that we've discussed, were originally a Germanic tribal people, with first records placing them in the lower region of the Rhine River, which is... Loosely like modern-day Western Germany, a little bit of Switzerland, and a little bit of France. And in the mid-5th century, under the military leader and later quote-unquote king, if you will, Kilderic, who is the founder of the Merovingian dynasty, 
which you might have heard of. Vast areas of Gallic territory around the Loire River were conquered or defended for the Roman Empire, where various small Frankish kingdoms under chieftains got settled. And then, under Kilderic's son Clovis, the kingdoms are united and fought against the Romans in the Battle of Soissons in 486, which gave way to the founding of the Frankish kingdom, and they become the predominant force of the region, expanding through the vast majority of what had been Gaul, and they set up a nice capital in Paris. That's how far back Paris goes. But most importantly here, Clovis had converted from paganism to Catholicism and was baptized in 508 due to the efforts of his wife, St. Clotilde. She gets to be a saint for it. Which led to a widespread shift in the whole of the Frankish population away from paganism and in our case, for the church, more importantly, away from Arianism. And this is going to have a huge impact on the ongoing dynamic of Christianity and papal history. So this is part of why Pelagius turns to the Franks for help, because of all of the barbarian tribes out there, the Franks as Catholics have a greater dedication to the cause of the Pope. But we also must go a little bit further on Clovis, because when he died in 511, his kingdom was divided amongst his sons. So in the time that Pelagius is reaching out, there were several Frankish kings vying for control, as it had been before Clovis. Although they will eventually go back to being unified. We're going to be dealing with the Franks for a long time, so we'll come back to them in more detail as time goes on. And, you know, eventually we're going to end up at Charlemagne, so... For now, that's what we need to know, is that the Franks have taken over pretty much all of Gaul. They were unified for a little bit. They're fractured a little bit when Pelagius is getting a hold of them. But they will go back. And most importantly, they are Catholics. So to get the Franks on side, Pelagius wrote to the Bishop of Oxar, who is Anacarius, or Anarius, depending on what source you use, in October 580, requesting that he use his influence with the Frankish kings to persuade them to come to the aid of the Italians. In his letter to the bishop, he says, We believe that it has been brought about by a special dispensation of the divine providence that the Frankish princes should confess the Orthodox faith, like the Roman emperors, in order that they may help this city. Persuade them with all earnestness to keep from any friendship and alliance with our most unspeakable enemies, the Lombards. So, how fortunate for us that you're Catholic. Please come and deal with these Lombards. And, and the Franks agreed for a price. They weren't about to come and invade for nothing. But if they were well compensated, sure, they could come wrap up that Lombard problem. And somehow, once this proposal was in the works, Gregory, who was in Constantinople, was then able to convince the Emperor Tiberius to send money to the Franks for the Pope. Look, hey, we found our own military force to deal with this. Can you just help us pay them? It was likely easier for the Byzantine emperor to throw a little money at the problem if someone else was going to do the heavy lifting. So he's like, great, sure, here's some money. And as agreed, the Franks invaded Italy and harassed the Lombards into defensive retreat where they weren't able to hold out for their blockages or their sieges or any of the cities they held. So the plan had worked perfectly. The Franks have come in, and they've driven away the Lombards. It's great. Okay, they're out. Yeah, it's fantastic. Good job, Pope Pelagius. And then the Franks ran out of motivation to keep fighting. 
Remember, they don't have a personal dog in this fight, and even though they're Christians, they're not super, super compelled to fight for the Pope or, or the Empire, and they're certainly not compelled to do this on a long-term scale. They were here fighting for money. And so when the Lombards, who'd just been forced out of Italy, turn around and go, hey, you want money, right? What if we give you a larger bribe to leave? And the Franks go, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, they go, cool, great. They accept. And they do just that. And so with a complete reversal of fortune, Italy is left without any level of defense. All of the money they had to pay the soldiers is gone. And now they have an increasingly aggravated horde of Lombards who are coming back. This doesn't look very good. Pelagius panicked and reached out to the emperor, likely hoping that he would increase the subsidy that he was paying to the Franks to maybe get them to reconsider. Hey, hey, we need more money. Help, help. But the emperor, who was now a new emperor called Maurice, had nothing else to give except, again, a new exarch called Smaragdus. <laughs> oh my god, that one's terrible. Yeah. That sounds like something you get in your undercarriage. Oh no, I have Smaragdus in my undercarriage. <laughs> oh dear. So basically that's all Maurice had Smaragdus to give. Even when the <laughs> Even when the Catholic Encyclopedia tells us that Gregory, quote, had been commissioned to haunt the imperial palace day and night, never to be absent from it for an hour, and to strain every nerve to induce the emperor to send help to Rome. So Gregory is harassing the emperor within an inch of his life. Like, he is always there, and he's like, help, 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 poke, 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 and it's not working. And all he has to give is Smaragdus. <laughs> Stop giving people Smaragdus. No one wants Smaragdus. So it won't be until 585 that the new exarch, Smaragdus, was able to negotiate out a tentative peace with the Lombards. That's just because they don't want Smaragdus. <laughs> they don't want the Smaragdus, so they're like, okay, okay, fine, here you go. There are more reasons than just negotiation that this happened at this time, like the shift of the Lombards away from that chaotic rule of the dukes coming back to a centralized power under a new king called Atari, but more on that. Like the video game system? That's that's how it's said. It's it's spelt with an extra U in there, Atari, but yes. Okay. We'll come back to that more in future episodes. Gregory gets there. As long as Gregory doesn't get Smaragdus. He's gonna get contact Smaragdus. <laughs> Gregory goes everywhere, so he would definitely pick up some, some contact Smaragdus somewhere. <laughs> so, during the whole Lombard kerfuffle, Milan was brought back into communion with Rome in 581. Now, we remember that they had been in schism back all the way to the three-chapter schism, where Milan and Aquileia had refused to accept Pope Vigilius's second constitutum, which had confirmed the condemnation of the three chapters, so they'd broken communion with Rome and the Pope. And in the time since then, Milan, northern Italy, and the Istrian Peninsula had all been conquered and absorbed into Lombard control. Before this, the Diocese of Milan had relied quite heavily on the Empire to defend them, as did pretty much every geographical region of Italy. But as we know, the Exarch in Ravenna didn't have close to the military force he would have needed to fend the Lombards off, so 
Milan doesn't get Smaragdus, they get Lombards. It's it's better that way. You don't want Smaragdus. Well, they wanted Smaragdus, but they got Lombards instead. No one wants Smaragdus. Tell that to Milan and Aquileia. They, they, they really wanted it for some reason. So, during that small, quote-unquote, peace of Rome, when the Franks were pushing the Lombards out, Pelagius had seized the opportunity to reunify the church and recalled his handy-dandy deacon Gregory from Constantinople to have him go there and assist in communication with the bishops of North Italy. This is Lawrence of Milan, Severinus of Aquileia, Elias of Grado, and some of the smaller Istrian churches. These letters that he sent would reinforce the apostolic succession of the Pope as the faith of Peter as indelible and unalterable. And they also proclaimed that the Roman Church was in fact in accordance with the Chalcedonian definition and that the canons of the Second Council of Constantinople did not contravene the Council of Chalcedon. Pretty much the same thing that they've been saying for a while. But this time, they were composed in a way that the sources call highly emotional. So whatever they had said before saying, hey, look, no, we're not actually contravening Chalcedon. We're fine. Now it's highly emotional. And this time it sticks. At least for Milan, it sticks. However, Bishop Elias of Grado and Severinus of Aquileia continued to resist, rejecting Pelagius's overtures of reunion. And this went over very poorly with the Pope, who decided he was going to turn to the exarch in Ravenna, Smaragdus, for assistance, and basically said, if you don't come into submission, I will force Smaragdus on you. And Smaragdus was forced on the bishops by violence into a synod in Ravenna, where he pressured them, the Archbishop Severinus in particular, to declare his reconciliation and loyalty to the orthodoxy of the Roman Church through proxy, basically, of Bishop John of Ravenna. And then he pressured all the lower bishops to do the same, because they don't want Smaragdus. Of course, as soon as the bishops left the synod that they'd been forced into having and forced into declaring at, they repudiated their declaration and the schism continued, now with renewed vigor and increased resentment of the Pope because he had sicked them with Smaragdus. And then um, Smaragdus was removed from his position in 589 due to complaints of violence and a charge of insanity. So, not a good moment. No. But Milan's back. Aquileia, not yet. And now we need to switch gears and talk about Pelagius's passion project. Do you know what his passion project was? Mm, uh, no. Clerical celibacy. That's why I, I called it the passion project. You see what I did there? Ah, uh, I see. <laughs> He's sticking his dick into some paper. Dick's out for celibacy, Fry. <laughs> We're back there. We've had a couple brief mentions of clerical celibacy throughout this podcast, but we haven't really dealt with it in a in a major way before. We've even had popes that were married and had children before the church, and we've seen many instances of married priests. So, because this is the first time that it comes up with any real emphasis from a pope, we're going to spend a little time making sense of what this and where this concept is in the church. To be clear, this is going to be a brief summary and we are not going to go into the full exploration of the inception of celibacy as a religious expression of holiness and all of that 
human psychology that's wrapped up in the concepts of celibacy. We're just going to have a look at how it first crops up in church structure and why. And the majority of this brief timeline that I'm giving to you is sourced from The Origins of Clerical Celibacy in the Western Church by Charles A. Frazee, which is a fantastic and well-laid-out article on the topic available on JSTOR, and I will put the link in the show notes. So the first theological debates about the celibacy, or what is often referred to as continence of the clergy, pop up in the late 3rd and early 4th century when the church starts to become legitimate and the role of a priest within the community began to change and develop, you know, which which makes sense. As, as the church expanded, there's an actual sense of clergy developing and a priest becomes that defined sort of class within society, as we saw when we covered those popes. No longer is a priest just an ordained member of the community who tended to the church and sacraments, but now it's a position that held gravitas and a sense of spiritual authority as well as certain prestige and power. And with prestige and power comes responsibility and an expectation of holiness. And married priests in this time when they're really starting to become a position of responsibility start to look somewhat divided in priority between the church and their family. And therefore, compared to a pope who might not have any of those things, they were started to be perceived as less holy in comparison. So the first recorded ecclesiastical council on the topic of clerical celibacy appears in 306 in Hispania, where Canon 33 of the Acts of the Synod of Elvira forbade married priests and deacons from having sex with their wives. So, you could be married, but you couldn't have sex with your wife. It says, quote, Bishops, presbyters, deacons, and others with a position in the ministry are to abstain completely from sexual intercourse with their wives and from the procreation of children. If anyone disobeys, he shall be removed from the clerical office. Like I said, important to note here, this isn't a prohibition on marriage just of sex and procreation. And this is a reflection of two attitudes about sex that were going to become more and more prevalent in the church. Aside from the argument of the inherent sinfulness of sex, you know, aka original sin, because that's always been there. But these are two differing viewpoints that are very, very prevalent at the time. And the first is that sex and its sin would corrupt the priest and therefore defile the Eucharist that they were administering. And the other was that having children caused a natural increase in ambition for power or wealth, like to build a legacy or a dynasty to pass on. And this isn't an attitude that was exclusive to the church either, because as we've discussed before, this is one of the reasons that eunuchs become so prevalent in administrative imperial roles, because by not having the ability to have children, it was assumed that they're less likely to plan some type of coup or usurpation. If you don't have a child, you're not really that concerned about, you know, increasing your own personal wealth and power because it's not going to go anywhere after you die. But this synod with the first canon on clerical celibacy didn't really have far-flung reach. It was just a local synod for their local bishops who they don't see other dioceses adopting their decision. But the idea does spread, and it spreads right to the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325, 
when the bishop presiding over the council, Hosius of Cordoba, remember him all the way back then? He proposed making clerical continence a mandatory institution of the church. He wasn't successful in convincing the bishops to agree with him, though, allegedly mostly on the account of Bishop Fafnudius of Thebaeus. That's a great name, Fafnudius. He argued against this as an imposition, and so the council ended up compromising, issuing canons that decreed once a priest had been ordained, he couldn't marry, and that females were restricted from the household of priests unless they were close family. We covered those canons when we talked about the Council of Nicaea in a bonus episode. Yes. The next evolution in the concept of clerical celibacy came shortly after Nicaea, and this was due to the rise and incredible popularization of monasticism and extreme asceticism, a la the Desert Fathers in the East, as we talked about at length with the history of the cops. Within the monastic philosophy, celibacy was not only ideal, but it was considered of the utmost importance as an expression of the renunciation of worldly attachments. And with massively important and inspirational figures like St. Anthony providing a living model of what ascetic living should look like, many priests who weren't monks started to embrace celibacy in the emulation of monks. And so it gained a greater foothold in the public presentation of the church to the rest of the world. And then this was expounded upon by theologians in the 4th and 5th century, including St. Basil of Caesarea, who said that, quote, celibacy makes the man like the incorruptible God and preserves the body from corruption, as well as St. Benedict of Nursia, who we mentioned last week, and of course, Ambrose of Milan, who wrote to the new priest, quote, you must remain strangers to conjugal intimacy, for you know that you have a ministry, whole and immaculate, which must never be profaned by any sexual relations. So the embrace of celibacy on a larger scale had reinforced this idea that sex was a corrupting force that stripped clerics of their worthiness to the ministry. And this is where Pope Pelagius comes in, because he shared this belief very zealously and promoted celibacy for clerics in a big way. And he passes new restrictions to enforce the practice within the clergy. We don't have an available copy of what his restrictions were, so we can only extrapolate that they were in particular reference to Sicily, where perhaps they had a much higher representation of married priest. And we also know, by extrapolation, that they were so super strict that Pelagius's successor, Pope Gregory, who was also a huge lover of celibacy himself, actually modified and relaxed Pelagius's policy because they were a little too much. And this will be far from the final word on celibacy, by the way, because it won't be settled in a way that looks familiar to us now until the Synod of Trullo in 692. So we're, we're definitely going to come back to this conversation of celibacy, but we've walked it through its inception point at this point. Pelagius loved it a lot and in a very strict way. Pelagius also came into conflict with Constantinople because the power jockeying between the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch of Constantinople was not going to stay dormant forever. It's been quiet for a while, but we're not done with that. So this new conflict arose over the usage of a title, this title being Ecumenical Patriarch, 
which was being used in the East for the Bishop of Constantinople, who's now a man at this time called St. John IV the Faster. The Pope objected to this title, Ecumenical Patriarch, for Constantinople because he felt that it threatened papal primacy. Remember, as we discussed with the Ecumenical Council, the word ecumenical means worldwide. So if Constantinople is the worldwide patriarch, then this implies an equal, if not a greater standing than that of the Pope, who is the apostolic bishop. So the term was first used by Bishop John in a summons to the Eastern bishops to a council to review charges against the Patriarch of Antioch, who was called Gregory, who was later acquitted and returned to his see. But Pelagius did not like seeing the phrase in the name of the ecumenical patriarch on those letters. The emperor, unsurprisingly, supported the Bishop of Constantinople in the dispute, and so Pelagius, in retaliation, issued an edict annulling the acts of the council that had just been held by John. It's very petty. It springs a whole new tension that will end up being one of the contributing factors to a much larger split later on. I'm sure you've heard of the Great Schism of 1054. Uh, no. Well. I'm sure I'm gonna learn. You're gonna learn so much. But yeah, this is this is the first sort of rumblings that we're gonna see for this, because he's going, hey, you can't use that title. And the Bishop of Constantinople and the Emperor are going, yeah, he can. And he goes, fine, I'll annul your council. And they start getting tense again. But other than that, the other little things that Pelagius did. Pelagius was responsible for the construction of the Basilica di San Lorenzo Fuori de la Mura, which is St. Lawrence outside the walls, on the alleged site of St. Lawrence's martyrdom on a small church that had originally been there that had been erected by Emperor Constantine. Now it's a proper basilica. And we're going to come back to the basilica in Facium Sanctus. So, wait for that. He also participated in adorning St. Peter's, and potentially for expanding and raising the Presbyterium on the site. There are also some academic theories that he might have been responsible for establishing the Lateran Monastery of San Pancrazio, which occurred somewhere in this obscure Lombard period, so they're not sure which pope did it, but they think it might be him. He also converted his own home into a hospital for the poor, which is a very nice thing to do, which may have been the original foundations for the Ospedale di San Giovanni, which is the St. John of Soros, which is still a large hospital serving Rome very close to the Lateran. So they think that his former home was the original site of this hospital that's still running. That is pretty cool. And it is a big hospital. Like, it is not small, so. And for it to have that kind of long-lasting legacy to be a hospital for 2,000 years, 1,500 years, pretty cool. And finally, during the time that Pelagius was pope, the Visigoths that were currently occupying Spain converted to Orthodox Christianity away from Arianism in what was the Third Council of Toledo in 589 under the Bishop Leander of Seville and King Recorin. The Pope had nothing to do with this, seeing as he couldn't get any communication outside of Rome. But it happened, and it expands the Orthodox influence, so we will consider it for Seculare Impactum. But then he died. Of course. No, he's still living today. He is immortal. And he's here with us now! We're gonna have an interview with him later. He's gonna have a dicks out for celibacy pin. It's gonna be great. Pelagius died on February 7th of 590. 
due to the ongoing ravages of the plague, potentially caused by the Tiber flooding, or maybe something else. Maybe something at vampires. I mean, it's just a good good way to look at it, but hey, this is the same plague that likely killed his predecessor in a different wave. So that means that this plague was still circulating through Rome after 11 years, which points us directly into the epidemic of smallpox that struck France and Italy throughout this time. Oh boy, okay. So there's plague and there's also smallpox. Yeah. This first known documentation of the onset of smallpox came in about 570 from Bishop Marius of Aventicum, which is modern-day Avanche, who coined the term variola to describe the pox or pustules that cover the skin. You'll see smallpox referenced as variola majore throughout history, and even today as variola major and minor. Yes. Closer in time and proximity, Gregory of Tours describes the epidemic as it hits France in 582, which is the account historians have used to confirm the likelihood of smallpox for this particular outbreak. So this is what he says. I know you love a good plague description. I do. He says, The state of Tours was desolated by a severe pestilential sickness. Such was the nature of the infirmity languor that a person, after being seized with a violent fever, was covered all over vesicles and small pustules. The vesicles were white, hard, unyielding, and very painful. If a patient survived to their maturation, they broke and began to discharge, when the pain was greatly increased by the adhesion of the clothes to the body. Among others, the lady of Count Eberin, while laboring under this pest, was so covered in vesicles that neither her hands nor feet nor any part of the body remained exempt, for even her eyes were wholly closed up by them. Could you imagine having so many smallpox pustules on your eyelids that you couldn't open them? Nope. That would blow. It would blow so hard. Or not, because your eyeballs are closed. Everything is closed because of pustules. Yeah, that would just be so bad. Of course, we know that smallpox is one of the most deadly viruses for humans on the planet, excepting, like, rabies. Except if you're a cow lady. I mean, that's a whole thing. I'm sure that the papacy will have something to say when we get to Jenner, you know, in the 1700s. But smallpox has, without a doubt, claimed more lives than even the Black Plague when you look at occurrences over time. So we can even, without specific figures, understand that this would have been, again, absolutely devastating for the population across the whole of Italy, and that their current state of ruin and scarcity was no way for adequate medical care for the dying or any preventative measures to not spread the disease. So things have just gotten worse <laughs> for Italy. We don't know for sure, but it's very possible that Pelagius was a poxy pope. He was buried in St. Peter's, and there's no epitaph that survived the renovation. But there is a notation in Wendy Reardon's book that says that he died of the plague, quote, that allegedly left its victims to die yawning and sneezing, which is strange. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. How do you do that at the same time? I don't know, but that's apparently how you died, according to her. The version I had, the note page is, is really blurry, so I can't really dig where she sourced this from to dig into it any further. But um, 
Yeah, he died of the plague that left its victims yawning and sneezing. So maybe smallpox also did that. And now I'm yawning. <laughs> oh no! You did it. That's not good. I've done it to you. You broke me. I did, and I am not sorry. But now we must rate a poxy pope man. Papatum infallium. The reunification of Milan back into communion with Rome. That is good. But then he violently forced Aquileia into declaring a return to communion, which was then immediately repudiated. So that's bad. He laid the foundation for clerical celibacy, which the church would say is good. But it was so strict, so it had to be rolled back. Maybe bad. Sources generally credit his most important legacy as, quote, recognizing the talents of the deacon Gregory. (laughs) Because, of course. And then... He picks a petty fight with Constantinople, but on the principle of protecting papal primacy. But this is going to push Eastern and Western Church back on a course of schism, which they've been off for at least a little bit. It's good. It's bad. It's something. What do you want to give him? Gosh, I'm I'm leaning around like a two. If that, I'm going to give him a three because uh, he got Milan back. The celibacy is something that is clearly huge for the church and. I am going to give him a point for trying to protect papal primacy, even though he did it the wrong way. You can you can understand why it was important that that title not be used for Constantinople at the time. So I will give him a three, and he will get a five. Fructus prohibitum. Here we could give him a point for forcing the Italian bishops into submission through violence and smaragdus. Given them that smaragdus. In their undercarriages. <laughs> I am going to give him a two for that. All right. Uh, yeah, two is good. Smaragdus is a little itchy, kind of annoying. Probably can get rid of it with some uh, antibiotics. It probably looks pretty tame in comparison to something like the smallpox, but hey. So he gets a four in that category. Seculari impactum. He found a way to hold off the Lombards from Italy, giving them a temporary reprieve. But he only did this by bringing in another invading force into Italy. So not great. And then that reinforced invasion left because of a bigger bribe. So it's not great. However, I mean, the only other thing we can consider here, because none of that is great, is that the relationship between the papacy and the Franks is going to play a major role in Christianity moving forward. So he starts that off. And then, of course, the other thing we want to consider is is Spain. Spain became Catholic. It's like a two from me. Yeah, two. Two is fine. I think I'm just leaning on the two button for this dude so far here. You are, but he gets a four in that category. Fossium Sanctus. There is a mosaic inside the current Basilica di San Lorenzo for La Mira, which we see Pelagius in standing alongside St. Lawrence and Christ, which may have been commissioned by him. So... It has been expanded and decorated and restored throughout the centuries, so it may not be contemporary, but it also might be contemporary. So maybe he can commission a thing while people are just dying in the street? That's, uh, I don't know. I have feelings. You gotta do something to bring their spirits up, so I'm gonna show you that one first, just because it's interesting, and then we'll get into the one where we're gonna rate him. Here is the whole church. There's a picture of the church for you, what it looks like from the outside. This is what it looks like from the inside. And you gave me a goddamn Jafet. 
I am going to give you Jafif's forever deal. So there's the full. And then I'm going to send you, uh, there is him with St. Lawrence. Look at those page boy haircuts. I know, right? They are, they are definitely wearing the monk cut. So there's another just kind of zoomy anyone. So he is clearly the man holding the church. So this might have been contemporary to his own time. And now that I'm going to send you, I, I want you to look at that image of him as he's presented there. And I'm going to send you the image we're going to rate him on. It's, it's not far off. Oh, no, it's not. This is our man. Okay, so the image that he had commissioned, air quotes, looks more like someone suffering from the plague. It is definitely the plague version of this other one. The one that's painted here is, is now that he kind of looks like Small Bean. A little bit? A little bit. I think it has, it's the facial hair thing. It may be. I like it. It's a, it's a younger looking Pope. He's definitely going to get a bonus point for, for looking like Sam. <laughs> we don't, we're not rating your face, No, Sam. we're not rating your face. <laughs> it is very clear. He's got eyeballs. I mean, I, I think it's pretty good. He is a decent-ish looking man. Well, I can give him like a, a six or a seven. I don't know. He's not bad looking. Seven, seven sounds good. We'll give him a seven each, which gives him a 14, which calculated gives him a 3.5. Not bad. I have another one that looks nothing like any of the other ones. So it's just, you know, weirdness. Why has he got like a, I don't know, like a literal hole in his chin? It's not a dimple. Oh yeah. It's a, it is a deep dimple, deep dimple. It's, there's nothing special about this one. Tempus Pontificus. So November 26, 579 to February 7th, 590, which is 11 years and a score of 2.75. That's not a bad run for like a plague infested city. I do have to question though, like, are people leaving? Are they having children in this plague infested city? They're trying. They're trying to leave or they're trying to have children? Both. You have to remember that there's nowhere to go that's better right now. Everything else is infested by Lombards and Franks, and they're also dying, and they're also having disease and famine, and the weather is bad, and there is no crop. So, like, you can stay with what you know in the hopes that by being in a big city, you're eventually going to have some recovery, or you can take your chances, but it's going to be just as bad. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Bit of a debate. One source, one source cited him as St. Pelagius II, but no others do. I could not find a feast day. There was no citation of him as a saint, so... A hard uh, maybe? Yeah, he's a hard maybe, but we're not going to give it to him. So that brings us to his total score, which compared to poor... Poor Benedict, who did next to nothing. He got a 19.25. Okay, well. So the question now is, is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impression enough? No. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you have some strong feelings about Pelagius too, which is... Get him away. Wow. Okay, well, we've gotten him away for you. There you go. We can say, with that, we have some thank yous to make, which we will thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor. And the other person I would like to thank is Lucia A. Walinches. I hope I said that right. Who just sent us a great tweet, and it made me laugh. She said, I just asked my husband what he wants for Easter when I clearly meant Christmas. Have I been listening to too much Pontifex? 
I said, you've been listening to just enough Pontifex. So thanks for putting that out there because it made me laugh. And yeah, so next week, you're in for it, you guys. It is is going to be a long episode. A fat episode. A fat episode. We are looking at, like, Leo the first level of episode. So prepare yourself. Get ready for Gregory the Great. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.